I-99, hope you're doing well. We are beginning a new collection this week called Holy Ghost as we dive deeper into the person of the Holy Spirit, and it's going to be dope. I want to start off by telling you about a friend of mine. His name is One. And I don't know if you have a friend like this in your friend group, but One in our friend group is often the forgotten one. Case in point, we were in Korea doing a ministry trip. There were about 16, 17 of us. And there was an incident where we were eating at a restaurant, having a good old time, eating bomb Korean food. And as we get ready to leave, you know, one goes to one of our leaders and says, I need to go to the bathroom really quick. And so he goes to the bathroom. He's doing his business. He steps out of the bathroom, and no one is in sight. And so he's starting to freak out a little bit. Okay, maybe they're around the corner. Maybe they're over there. Maybe they're outside. So he's looking around, and he comes to the startling realization that the group had left him. And so at this point, he's freaking out because he's in a foreign land. He doesn't know the neighborhood, doesn't know the streets. He doesn't even remember how to get back to the center where we were at. And so he's stumbling through the streets of Korea trying to find his way back. And after a few minutes miraculously, he found his way back to the center, and he's probably thinking, oh my gosh, everyone was probably worried, everyone's probably, you know, wondering where he was, and so he walks up to the first person he sees, a guy in our group named Nathan, and Nathan hands one a box and says, can you load that in the van, and walks away. And one realized no one even knew that he was lost. No one even knew that they left him. He was completely forgotten. Now, that wasn't so bad. But when we get back from our trip, you know, our pastor wanted to do something nice. So he's preparing these handmade gifts for us where he's doing this beautiful Korean calligraphy of our names. And he made a custom frame for each one of our group members. And so he invites us to his house. He's presenting us the gifts, calling us uh, out name by name, like Mickey, here's your gift. Krista, here's your gift. Christopher, Daniel, here's your gift. And, you know, one, he's looking at us, and he's, like, laughing, having a good time. He's joking. He's like, yo, I bet he forgot mine. You know, he's saying that, but deep down inside, he's like, no way that he forgot about me again. And so the numbers are starting to dwindle. There's only five gifts left, four gifts. The names are dropping off, and one still hasn't gotten his gift. And finally, he hands off the last gift. Everyone got one except one. And so one's like, he's playing with me. And so our pastor, he looks in the bag and he looks shocked, expecting maybe something would show up. He's like, oh, and one's like, come on, Pastor Tim. I know you're messing with me. And Pastor Tim shows him the bag. He's like, I'm so sorry, one. I completely forgot. You know, one's still in denial, like you didn't forget about, you forgot about me again? You know, one has so many of these stories about being forgotten and left behind. And I tell you this because I think in the church, we talk a lot about God the Father. We focus a lot on Jesus the Son. But Holy Spirit seems to be that forgotten God. The one we left behind at the restaurant. The one we neglect. And I think for most of the Western church, the Trinity, if we were to be honest, is Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And Holy Spirit is the neglected one. You know, I fear that the Western church has become so preoccupied with programs and attention-grabbing marketing and the building of our empires that we've left absolutely no room for Holy Spirit. 
Reinhard Bonnke, uh, an amazing evangelist, once said, the less Holy Spirit we have, the more cake and coffee we need to keep the church going. Maybe for us, it's coffee and puppies, right? And I I think we forget that the thing that drew people to the church and kept them there was not the fog machines, the programs, the sick designs. It was the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. Uh, Francis Chan wrote a book about this called The Forgotten God. And he says, if I were Satan and my ultimate goal was to thwart God's kingdom and purposes, one of my main strategies would be to get churchgoers to ignore the Holy Spirit. Listen, in order for us to be the church that God has called us to be, in order for us to be the people God has called us to be, we cannot afford to ignore Holy Spirit. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to dive deeper into the person of the Holy Spirit. We're going to explore Holy Spirit, who he is, what he does. And it's going to be really cool. And maybe some of you come from a charismatic background and inside you're going, yes, finally, shit about a Honda, but about a Hyundai, right? You're excited. Get the tambourine ready. Get the worship flags. I'm going to bust out my shofar. If you don't know what a shofar is, it's a ram's horn that Israel used to use for battle cries and celebrations. I remember one time at the last church I was at, I was holding worship auditions. And at the end, this middle-aged woman came up to me and she said, I'd like to audition. So I was like, okay, are you going to be singing? Do you have an instrument? She's like, I have an instrument. Let me go grab it. She goes to the back of the room, pulls out a bag and out of the bag pulls out this giant shofar, a giant ram's horn. It's like, I would like to audition. I'm like, are you serious? And so, no lie, she starts blowing this ram's horn for me, trying to get onto the worship team. And there's all these different techniques. Like, this is the battle cry. You got to blow once and then pause, blow once again. So she's like, here's here's a celebration cry. And she's like, and she's blowing all these shofar techniques for me. And so maybe you come from that background where something like that is not um, irregular. Or maybe you come from a conservative background, or maybe you experience weird stuff around spiritual gifts. You've experienced abuse or confusion. You're saying, no, things were going so well here at 99. Now it's time to find a new church. But I imagine most of you are probably like, "Eh, we're in the middle because I have no background learning anything about Holy Spirit. I have no experience interacting with Holy Spirit. And so you're just like, okay, I'll go along for the ride. Listen, regardless of your, your history or your experience or interaction with Holy Spirit, if we're serious about knowing God and following him, we can't ignore the Holy Ghost. And so in this collection, you know, we're going to talk about all the fun, weird stuff like spiritual gifts, tongues, prophecy, miracles. But we wanted to start off today by first understanding who Holy Spirit is as a person. And so will you pray with me, church? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your presence. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. We want to be a church that does not neglect who you are, but we want to be a people that values and treasures you, Holy Spirit. And so we make room for you. Would you illuminate our hearts? Would you speak to us today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, renowned theologian Gordon Fee, he wrote a thousand-page writing on the Holy Spirit, and it goes 
in depth about Holy Spirit, the history of Holy Spirit, what Holy Spirit does, what he means. And in describing who Holy Spirit was, he summarized all of his writings, all of those thousands of pages into three words, God's empowering presence. Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. And if we're to break this down any further, Holy Spirit is God's person, God's power, and God's presence. Now, a few years back, Christianity Today ran a survey amongst believers here in the United States. And they said, true or false, the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. And the results were staggering. 51% said true. Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. 7% said we're not sure, we have no idea. And only 42% said false. Holy Spirit is not a force. He's a person. So 58% of believers here in America said that they believe Holy Spirit is a force. And the first thing that we have to understand is that Holy Spirit is not a force. He is a person. I mean, think Star Wars. The force is this unseen power that enables Jedis to move objects, jump really high, mind control. You know, I'm thinking about that scene when Yoda was lifting the X-Wing out of the swamp. And I think many believers today look at Holy Spirit as a force or a power to accomplish all of these supernatural things like healings and prophecy and tongues. And what ends up happening is Holy Spirit becomes something like our personal Pokemon. Ooh, someone needs healing? Holy Spirit, I choose you. Need an encouraging word from God? Holy Spirit, go. I remember when I was really deeply entrenched in a charismatic circle, we used to do this thing called spirit bombs. And it was all in good fun where we'd like, harness Holy Spirit and we throw it at each other. And when we catch Holy Spirit, we like, you know, start like flailing and stuff. And it was really foolish, but it was a lot of fun. And looking back on it, I'm a little embarrassed now. But when I think about it, I don't know if Krista would appreciate me throwing her at people. We have to remember Holy Spirit is not an it or a thing or a force to be thrown or passed off or a power to be used. He is a person. He is God's person. And this fundamentally changes the way we interact with Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a power to wield, but a person to get to know. He is not a force to be used, but someone we're called into relationship with. For me, even describing him as the Holy Spirit kept playing into this idea that he's not a person, but a power to be used. So for me, I dropped the You know, you probably noticed that I refer to him not as the Holy Spirit, but as Holy Spirit. I mean, it's like if you came up to me and asked me, what'd you do last week, Mickey? Oh, you know, I chatted with the Kevin Libertino after I video recorded the Ying Mo for our Sunday service and came home to watch Selling Sunset on Netflix with the Krista Cho. You know, there's nothing wrong with calling him the Holy Spirit. All I'm saying is that we have to remember that he is not a force or a power or a thing or an it. He is a person. He is God's person. Now, is Holy Spirit powerful? Yes. Does Holy Spirit empower us to do powerful things? Yes, but he is a person. He is God. And our priority shouldn't be to use Holy Spirit for his power, 
but to build a relationship with him. We actually find that we're able to access more of Holy Spirit's power as we grow in intimacy with him. And so Holy Spirit is not a force. He is a person. Now, I want to start at the very beginning. I want us to look at Genesis 1, 1 through 2. And we're going to track Holy Spirit and see if we can learn more about who he is by looking back to the beginning. Now, Genesis 1, 1, 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so Holy Spirit was there at the beginning, and he was hovering over the waters, over the empty, dark surface of the deep. The image this invokes is like a dove hovering over the waters, flapping its wings. Now, the word here for spirit in the Greek is a word ruach. Now, you got it kind of like ruach which can actually be translated to wind or breath. And so another way of looking at it is this invisible, powerful energy, this breath, this wind that's necessary for life. Now check this out. I want us to jump to Genesis 2-7. Keep this first passage in mind. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath or ruach of life and the man became a living being and so god forms man from dirt an empty lifeless vessel and he breathed into his nostrils the breath or the ruach of life now let's look at this the earth was formless empty and dark but then the spirit breathes life into it. Man was formless, empty, and dark, but then what? The spirit breathes life to it, ruach. Listen, whatever is empty, dark, or dead, when the spirit of God comes, it comes alive. Listen, without Holy Spirit, this is just a dead religion. Without Holy Spirit, the Bible is just a lifeless rule book. Without Holy Spirit, the church is just a club. Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We're like ships without the wind that's guiding our sails and blowing energy into what we're doing. Holy Spirit is the wind, the breath that energizes our spiritual lives. He's the wind that energizes our work. He's the breath that gives life to our spiritual practices. And Holy Spirit empowers us, the believer, to live the life that Jesus promises us in John 10.10, life and life to the full. Another great theologian, Charles Spurgeon, he says, Every growth of spiritual life from the first tender shoot until now has been the work of the Holy Spirit. The only way to more life is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to live fruitful, joy-filled lives. And as the earth was empty and void and dark, As man was empty, void, and dark, when Holy Spirit comes, he breathes life, the ruach, into our being, into life. In other words, 
If you want to live in kingdom reality, you've got to get familiar with Holy Spirit. If you want to experience that peace that transcends all understanding, you need the Holy Ghost. If you want to experience joy in the middle of your storm, you need the Holy Ghost. If you want to shine as a witness to the world around you, you need the Holy Ghost. And so Holy Spirit is God's person, but he's also God's power empowering us to live a fruitful life. Now, we're going to focus more on what Holy Spirit empowers us to do next week, but I just wanted to create a basic framework. And so we see that Holy Spirit is God's person and Holy Spirit is God's power. Now, we have to understand, this is amazing if we understand this. In the beginning, the fundamental definition of a human being was one who walked in a face-to-face relationship with God and was filled with the Spirit. Now, I think today we kind of have misconstrued it, right? When we say, oh, he's only human or she's only human, we're actually talking about our fallen nature, that we're prone to make mistakes and falling short. But in the beginning, in the garden, what it meant to be human was not that you would fall short, that you would fail. It meant that you were in a face-to-face relationship with God, and you were filled with his ruach, his spirit. But what happened? If we look at the story, sin enters into the world, and all of a sudden, humanity is cut off from God's presence. And so the very thing that defined humanity filled with the Ruach, the spirit, the presence of God, all of a sudden, because of sin, because of the fall, humanity is cut off from God's presence. And even today, we experience traces of that, don't we? There are times we feel like we're cut off from God's presence. I mean, you're sitting there trying your best to worship through the screen, but you feel so disconnected from God's presence. You're trying to pray in your room, but you feel disconnected from him. But we have to understand from the beginning, God's longing was to be with his people. And so I want us to look, we're going to, it's going to be a little more study focus in the next few minutes. I just want, just track with me here. I want us to track the movement of God's presence throughout history. And the way that we're going to break it down into six sections, Sinai, tabernacle, temple, exile, Jesus, and church. Okay, so track with me. I promise we're going somewhere. And so People, humanity are cut off from the presence of God. They're no longer communing with the spirit of God. And so I want us to look at Sinai in Exodus 19, 16 through 20. Would you read this with me? On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trump blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. And so the presence of God, after being separated from humanity, descends on the top of Mount Sinai. And Moses is the only one brave enough to go up to be in God's presence. And it was terrifying. I mean, lightning, 
cloud, fire, smoke, things that we don't want to be around. It was terrifying for the people. People didn't want to go near God's presence. It was inaccessible still. But Moses was the only one. But now God's presence in humanity left humanity because of the fall, now dwelling on the top of Mount Sinai, meeting with Moses. Next, we go to the tabernacle, Exodus 25, 8-9. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. If we fast forward to Exodus 40, 34 to 35, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so we see Yahweh instructing the Israelites to build a sanctuary that will house his presence. And we have to remember the Israelites were nomadic, so everywhere they went, they pitched up their tents. And tabernacle was essentially a tent, a place where the presence of God would come and fill and dwell. And so this is significant because no other gods did this. Gods were far off, removed from the people, and people were always trying to get to God. But Yahweh... So that's a different precedence. He says, I want to be with my people. And so they, he instructs them, build this tabernacle, pitch up this tent, and I will fill it with my presence wherever you go, so that wherever you go, you will be my people, and I will be with you. And so they would pitch up this tabernacle, this tent, and the glory of God came as a cloud and filled up the tent with this presence. Another word used for this was the Shekinah glory, the manifest presence of God that came as a cloud, that came as a fire, that could be experienced with the senses in our body. And so the presence of God goes from the mountaintop now to the tabernacle, to the tent. Now we go to the temple, okay? At the height of Israel's history, now they're in the promised land. They're no longer wandering in the wilderness. Now they're prospering. They're winning against all the other armies. And God instructs David now to build a temple that will house his presence. And so I want us to look at 1 Kings 8, 10 through 13. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not... Perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. Now, the presence of God was housed in a building. It was an upgrade, right? From food truck to brick and mortar. The presence of God was no longer moving nomadically in tents, but now is this beautiful temple, this extravagant housing for the presence of God. But we have to understand, even then, only a few people got to enter into God's presence. You know, every year a priest would tie a rope you know, around his waist, and he would enter the temple into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelled to make sacrifices and offerings on behalf of the people. And they tied a rope around him and put a bell on him to know that when the bell stopped ringing, they could pull the body out so they wouldn't have to go in lest they die. So it was still inaccessible, right? So the presence goes from the mountaintop to the tabernacle to the temple. Now, 
we get to the exile. In Ezekiel 10, 11, the prophet Ezekiel writes, Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. Now, up to this point, we read a lot about God's presence coming to be with Israel. But Israel again and again continues breaking covenant with God. And for the first time we see since the fall, God's presence now leaves the people. It leaves the temple. Now their homeland is destroyed. Foreign armies are coming in. They're taking people away and they're driven out of their land into exile. But it's in this exile that God begins empowering prophets to tell of a day that is coming when God's presence would return. And so later in Ezekiel, I want us to look at Ezekiel 37, 11 through 14. This is what he prophesies. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. Now, this is the key verse. I will put my spirit in you and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. If we fast forward to verse 27, my dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Ezekiel is prophesying about a day when the Spirit of God will no longer dwell in a mountaintop or a tabernacle or a temple, but in the people, the presence of God will dwell in them. And during this time, many other prophets were prophesying similar things, saying there's coming a day where God is going to pour out his spirit, not in a physical place, not in the confines of a building or walls, but in a people. And so God is raising up prophetic voices to begin gearing the people, getting them ready, getting them excited and filling them with hope. There's coming a time you will no longer be separated from my presence. But we have to understand there was 400 years of silence during the exile where people did not have access to the presence of God, where they were disconnected from his presence. And all these people had to hold on to were these prophecies about a coming day when God's presence would return and fill his people. And so from the mountaintop to the tabernacle, to the temple, and now removed in the exile, but people are holding on to the hope of these prophetic voices. Then we get to Jesus. Matthew 3, 16, 17. I hope you're geeking out about this. I mean, maybe because I'm a theologian, I went to theological school, but I I love this, right? In Matthew 3, 16, 17, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove. Once again, that imagery, like, like the dove, like the bird hovering over the water in the beginning of time, like a dove and alighting on him, resting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. And so this is Jesus's coronation to his ministry. He hadn't done a single miracle. He hasn't done anything yet. 
But in this moment, all of a sudden, the heavens open up, and not a dove itself, but something like a dove rests upon him, which represents the Holy Spirit. And so now the Spirit of God comes down and fills Jesus. It rests upon him. Now, a few chapters later, Jesus is driving the corrupt people from the temple. You know the story. People are selling things in the temple. It's become a den of robbers. And so Jesus fashions a whip. You know, he, 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 became, he becomes like hardcore savage Jesus. He's driving people out of the temple. And afterwards, he's talking to the people. He's talking to the Pharisees. And he says this in John chapter 2, 19 through 21. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And so imagine this. They had been rebuilding this temple, right? This was supposed to be where the presence of God dwells. This is historically where God's presence rested. And now you're saying we can destroy it, that we don't need it. And they're waiting and waiting for the day that God's presence would come and fill the temple again. But Jesus, in the most offensive way, says, nah, destroy it. We don't need it. This thing that you've been working so hard to rebuild is no longer necessary. Why? Because Jesus is saying, now I am the temple. Now I am the dwelling place of God's presence from Sinai to the tabernacle to the temple in exile. And now in a person, Jesus Christ. Isn't that powerful? And so Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of those prophecies of the Spirit of God coming back to dwell in us. Now, I want us to look at one thing. There there was something known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was a yearly annual thing where it was a celebration looking back to the time of the Exodus when all of Israel, they were living in tabernacles or tents, hence the name Feast of Tabernacles. And so they remembered their wandering. They remembered how God had led them through the Exodus. And so for a week every year, everyone would come to Jerusalem and live in tents around the temple. They would pitch up tents, bring their whole family. They would just be around the temple in Jerusalem, in the holy city. And they would be celebrating for a week, remembering the Exodus. But as much as it was a time of looking back, it was also a time of looking forward to a day when God would lead his people into the new Exodus, when God would fulfill his prophecies about pouring out his presence among the people. Now, on the last day of the seven-day feast, everyone would crowd into the city. And the high priest would start at the bottom of the city because, you know, the city was built on a hill. He would start at the bottom of the city at the Pool of Siloam, which was a water source for all of Jerusalem. And he would take a bucket of gold and dip it into the water until it was filled all the way to the brim. And he would carry it all the way up to the temple, passing by all the crowds of people, all the while people are cheering, shouting, singing, and celebrating. You know, you can just imagine, it's like the Olympic torch carrier, and everyone's just cheering as he passes. This priest with this gold bucket of water is making his way up to the temple. Now he gets to the temple, And a hush would fall over the crowd. It would become completely silent. All eyes on the priest. Everyone looking and listening and watching. And the priest would grab this full gold bucket of water. And he would pour the water upon the altar at the temple. 
And this was a symbolic act pointing forward to a day and an age when all the prophecies about God pouring out his spirit upon all people would come true. See, Israel was waiting for the day when God's presence would be with them once again. And every year they did this. They would long more and more for that coming day. The pouring out of that bucket of water over the altar representing the one day that God will pour out his presence among his people. Now, with this context in mind, let's look to John 7, 37 through 39. And so it says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice. Now, this festival is happening. This ritual had just taken place. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so I imagine, okay, this is, I'm not sure if this is exactly how it played out, but it's like the hush fell over the crowd, right? The high priest is pouring the water as this prophetic declaration of a day to come. And then Jesus, in the middle of that silence, in a loud voice, he's saying, hey, if y'all thirsty, Y'all longing for this, what we're doing right here, for the spirit to come out, for, for you to have this living water? I'm it. God has filled me with his presence and through me now, you will be an access point for the presence of God. Now, this will not just be a prophetic symbolic act. It will become a reality through me. And so Jesus announces that he would fulfill all the ancient prophecies about God's presence, coming not to dwell in a tent or a mountaintop or a temple, but in a people, a people filled with the presence of God, and that through him, they would have access to God's presence once again. And so we see from Sinai to the tabernacle, to the temple in exile, to Jesus. Now Jesus is saying, Come to me, and you will receive the presence of God. And so we see Jesus, he, he lives his life, he dies, he's crucified, and he resurrects. And there's this really funny moment, I think it's funny, in Matthew 28, at the very end of Matthew. He's exhorting his disciples, you know, you're going to make disciples of all nations, you're going to be empowered, you have to continue my mission. He's hyping them up, giving them a farewell speech. And he says in Matthew 28, 20, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then he bounces. Like, I just imagine him saying, surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. And he just starts ascending and he leaves and all the disciples are looking at each other like, didn't he just say he'll always be with us? Why is he bouncing right now? It's like, it's like me asking someone to be a CG leader, pumping them up, encouraging them, saying, we're going to do this together and then leaving to start a new church. Like that would ever happen, right? And so we see that Jesus promises the people, his disciples, that I'm going to be with you always. But then he leaves. But the disciples begin remembering things that he said during his lifetime. One such thing is in John 16, 7. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Because unless I go away, the advocate 
another name for Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so Jesus leaves and the disciples are remembering, wait, but he said, he said, wait. He said, he's sending us someone. He said, he's sending us someone who will be the stand in representation for Jesus, for God. He will be God's presence with us. So from the garden to the mountain, to the tabernacle, to the temple, through the exile, now to Jesus. And now the disciples are waiting for Holy Spirit now to come to them. This is where we get to the final act, church. Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as a spirit enabled them. This is huge. For the first time in all of history since the garden, God's presence descended not on a mountaintop, not in a tent or a temple, not in a single prophet or a Messiah, but on a people, the church. And this was more than just a weird charismatic experience where people got the gift of tongues and they're falling out. This was hundreds upon hundreds of years of waiting for God's presence to return to his people. Imagine your entire lineage, generation upon generation, waiting for this promise, this prophetic word to be fulfilled. Where in the past, my ancestors had to look off from a distance, never enter into the presence of God, or enter in with fear of dying. But now for the first time ever, God's presence comes down to dwell within his people. This is powerful. I think this is why it's such a tragedy to neglect Holy Spirit, which is God's presence with us. Because if you look throughout the history of the Bible, how much God's presence had to go through everywhere that it went just to get to us. It's a powerful, powerful thing. Now, 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul expounds upon this more. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples? And this word temple is the same word that we used in the past when, when they would refer to the dwelling place of the presence of God. So do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, dwelling places of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? From the garden to the mountaintop, to the tabernacle, to the tent, to the prophets, to the Messiah, and now to you. You are a temple for the presence of God. You are a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. Listen, the moment you gave your life to Jesus, he gave you the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence. And what that means is God is with us. It means that his presence will never leave you. It means God is able to breathe over all the dead areas of your life. It means Holy Spirit is able to bear love, joy, peace, and all the good fruits of his spirit within you. He is the breath, the ruach, the wind that energizes your lives so that you can live the life that Jesus promised, life and life to the full. I grew up in a Christian household. I knew about Jesus. I once thought my pastor of a Korean church was actually God the Father, and I was terrified of him. He had white hair and this white robe. But I, I, I didn't really know anything about Holy Spirit. 
And I'll never forget the first time that I had an encounter with Holy Spirit. It was at a youth retreat. I had been very far from God. I would wake up every Sunday morning, lie that I was feeling sick so I wouldn't have to go to church. And it's like I knew all about Jesus. I'd accepted him into my life, but there was no momentum. There was, I don't know if you've ever felt like this. Like, I know that God is good. I know living a life of faith is the way that I'm called to live. But I just have no energy. I just have no momentum to actually do it. And I remember at this retreat, it's always the last night. Worship team is playing. Altar calls happening. And all of a sudden, in the middle of worship, I fall to my knees. And for the first time ever, I feel the presence of God. I'm overwhelmed by the presence of God. And I have this radical vision of a cross and blood pouring down, kind of like that scene from The Shining. But it was glorious and beautiful. And the blood was washing over me, but it didn't leave me bloodied. It left me clean and sparkling. All the filth on my body was washed away. And I remember in my physical body feeling for the first time the presence, the nearness of God. It's like God is always with you. He's always with us. But there's something about his empowering presence being made manifest. All of a sudden, an awareness of his presence is here. Holy Spirit is here. And I remember that night, for three hours, I was just weeping. My body feeling the presence of God crushed under his weight in the most beautiful, loving way. I remember that was the first time I received a prophetic word where someone was telling me all my business, telling me God knows you and sees you. He is with you. And I remember after that retreat, it's like there was a new wind, a new energy, a fresh breath in my spiritual life where I began pursuing God with all my heart. I began reading the word differently. I began attending Bible studies. I'm all of a sudden, this dead faith that I would lie to stay in bed to avoid was filled with a new energy, a new momentum. It was the Holy Spirit. And so listen, we can't do this life without him. Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. He is God's person, not a force or a power, but God himself, not a power to wield, but a person to build a relationship with. He is God's power, empowering us to live life to the full, breathing life into the dead areas. And he is God's presence, the one who's traveled throughout history from the garden to the mountaintop, to the tabernacle, to the temple, through the exile, to the Messiah, and now making his dwelling in us. And so this week, we want you to do what Brother Lawrence calls practicing the presence of God. Essentially, we want you to begin building a relationship with Holy Spirit. Now, yes, the presence of God is always with us. He lives in you. He's with us as we work, as we do dishes, as we exercise, as we eat. But something changes when we live with the awareness of his presence in every moment of our lives. Now it's not just an understanding that he's with me, but now I'm aware and I begin to see him move. I begin to feel him. I begin to hear his voice. And so this week, we want to challenge you to start building a relationship with Holy Spirit, practicing the presence of God. And so maybe as you work, you're going to take a moment to talk to Holy Spirit 
and be reminded that his presence is there with you, empowering you to be excellent. Maybe as you eat, you're going to take a moment to invite Holy Spirit. Be reminded that you have fullness of joy in the presence of God. Maybe in bed at night before you sleep, you take a moment to commune with Holy Spirit. Ask him to flood your mind with peace and give you hope for the next day. Interact with him in the little moments of your everyday. Address him by name. Instead of praying to God the Father or Jesus, say, Holy Spirit, I want to address you right now. I want to be aware of your presence right now. I want you here. So this week, church, let's practice the presence of God in every little moment of your everyday. It could be a few seconds. It could be a few minutes. But let's begin paying attention to Holy Spirit and addressing him as a person. You know, A.W. Tozer gave this very scathing quote. He says, I remind you that there are churches so completely out of the hands of God that if the Holy Spirit withdraw from them, they wouldn't find it out for many months. I think as a pastor, reading that terrifies me. To think that we can continue doing church without the presence of God and we wouldn't even know it. That's a scary thing. And the question I want to ask you, 99, is are you tired of playing church? Are you tired of playing religion, singing our catchy little songs, hearing an encouraging pep talk, and then going back to our dead lives? We need Holy Spirit. We need the Ruach, the breath of God, to breathe life into everything we do, into reading the word, into worshiping, into praying. And so what if we could be a church filled with Holy Spirit and not because we're loud or shouting in tongues or blowing shofars or being particularly charismatic, but we're a church filled with the Holy Spirit because we're a people who have an intimate relationship with the presence of God and heightened awareness that he is with us because we're a people so full of love, joy, peace, and life and the fruits of the Holy Spirit because we're a people who embody God with us. That's my dream. That's my desire. I want us to be a church filled with Holy Spirit, with God's empowering presence. I want to end with a prayer by someone. Her name was Hildegard of Bingen. Kind of a mouthful. She was a second century abbess, artist, author, composer, preacher, theologian. She was all of it, okay? And Hildegard had this radical encounter with God at the age of 42 where she encountered the presence of God through a vision. And in this vision, she saw a fiery light that came and kindled her heart. And at that moment, she said she understood who God was and what he wanted her to do. And so she would have these visions and she would write them down and you know, pass them off to people. She began to compose songs and poems of worship. She's most notably known for going on these preaching tours, rebuking church leaders for spiritual abuse. Like she's going to churches, calling pastors out for their abuse, for all of their wrong theology. She would go around and rebuke them. Like she was, she was a G, okay? And so Hildegard of Bingen wrote this powerful prayer about Holy Spirit. She says this, Holy Spirit, the life that gives life. You are the cause of all movement You are the breath of all creatures. You are the salve that purifies our souls. 
You are the ointment that heals our wounds. You are the fire that warms our hearts. You are the light that guides our feet. Let all the world praise you. As we read this, I want us to pray with the very same heart that Hildegard prayed. And it wasn't until that vision, that radical encounter with the presence of God, where all of a sudden wind, that new energy, that breath of life was infused in her. And I believe Holy Spirit has that for you today. So will you close your eyes with me as we pray? Holy Spirit, would you breathe life into us? Because we're so tired of being dead. We're so tired of fruitless times in your presence, in the word, in prayer, in worship, in service. God, we need the breath of Holy Spirit to fill us up and to breathe life into all that we do. We need Holy Spirit to help us overcome our addictions. God, we need Holy Spirit to lead us into your presence. We need you. We need the fire that warms our heart, the light that guides our feet. Holy Spirit, we need you. And so we acknowledge you today as God. And we ask you to come and empower us to live the life that you have always called us to live. And we thank you for your presence that has traveled so far and wide to dwell within us. May we be stunning temples that make room for your presence.